Welcome to Healthy Living, Healthy Planet Radio, sponsored by EarthX, the world's largest environmental experience, and also sponsored by Natural Awakenings Magazine. Live your healthiest life on a healthier planet. Now here's your host, Bernice Butler. Welcome to Healthy Living, Healthy Planet Radio today. We're now in our second season and more excited than ever to continue to help you explore and understand the unbreakable relationship between your health and the health of the planet. We look at the hottest topics related to our environment and its sustainability and how they affect your health and wellness. Here, issues like climate change, plastic pollution, extreme weather events, and others will meet up with everyday impacts like allergies and asthma, digestive issues and gut health, cancers, lung, and heart issues, and more. So listen in today as we interview experts for today's episode on the long life cycle of plastics, the environmental and health cost. Now, it's no secret that plastics are not ideal. In some cases, it can take up to almost 500 years for some plastics to break down. And that's like the entire duration of the old Roman Empire. This lengthy lifespan of plastic spells big problems for human health and our environment. The ubiquitous marine plastic, for instance, degrades and fragments into microplastics which we hear a lot about these days, and the microplastics can seep into the food chain and end up in our bodies, and that can have some significant disrupting effects. So far, much of the research on the impact of plastics on human health has focused on a specific moment in the plastic life cycle, such as the manufacturing process, product testing, or to a great degree, disposal or lack thereof. But according to a first-of-its-kind international report released on Tuesday, the true toll of these polymers should be calculated looking at the whole entire life cycle of a plastic product's existence, from the wellhead to the final waste, and that's not often done. This report, which was authored by the Center for International Environmental Law in partnership with six other environmental organizations, finds that each of these stages of the plastic life cycle interacts with others, and all of them interact with the human environment and the human body in multiple, often intersecting ways. Now, while plastic is the material du jour, in part thanks to its cheap price and convenience, the true cost of plastics has been contributing to climate change and keeping us dependent on fossil fuels by entering our water, air, food supplies, and again, seriously jeopardizing our human health throughout this entire life cycle. And in a recent press release, Graham Forbes, who is the global plastics leader for Greenpeace, has said that This is a very serious problem, again, significantly jeopardizing all of us. And here today to help us explore and understand this is Jane Patton, and she is with the Center for International Environmental Law, who authored this significant report that we've been talking about. Now, Jane is a senior campaigner with the environmental health team of the Center for International Environmental Law, and she's based in New Orleans, Louisiana. Her work focuses primarily on global policy regarding the full cycle 
of plastics or the full life cycle of plastics. Since 2011, Jane has been working with communities to address inequality, to mitigate harm, and increase justice. And in 2015, Jane co-founded No Waste Louisiana, which organizes for waste reduction and community-driven systems of reuse, refill, and repair, and supports local groups across Louisiana to resist the onslaught of petrochemical development happening there, because Louisiana is petrochemical central. I don't know, one or two behind Texas. And in 2016, Jane transitioned to full-time environmental campaign and coalition building, serving for two years as a managing director of Plastic Pollution Coalition, who was with us last year on this program, before moving to support and lead campaigns, projects, and policy work as part of her work for the Break Free from Plastic movement. Jane serves as interim coordinator for the U.S. arm of the Break Free from Plastic movement for their global corporate campaigns before joining the team at the Center for International Environmental Law. Jane holds a B.A. in International Relations and Politics from the University of Essex and a Master of Public Policy from Georgetown University. So I think she might be able to be called an expert in particularly the environmental side of plastic pollutions. Welcome, Jane. We're so glad you could be with us today. I'm so glad to be here. Thank you. Jane, we want to start out by talking about why have plastic products become so widely used across the U.S. and internationally, and why and how are they harmful to the environment? The answer to why they're so widely used is pretty simple. It's because companies wanted them to be widely used. Plastics originally became of interest to the oil and gas industry during the World War II era, when they were experimenting to maximize profit um, from every stage of the oil refining process. Because refining oil uh, produces a waste product. Basically, everything that gets filtered out of the crude oil that can't be burned as petroleum or gas. Um, And plastics are made out of that leftover byproduct. So at the pace that the country at that time was burning through um, oil and gas, and the pace at which we continue to burn through oil and gas, um, those corporations realized they could actually make a lot of money if they created a market for this new wonder product called plastic. At that same time, which was around the World War II era, as I said, consumer goods were originally sold in bulk or in reusable packaging, like metal boxes or glass bottles. So the increase in single-use packaging came about when companies like Coca-Cola and Nestle were actually marketed this lightweight, much cheaper packaging product which would then allow them to transfer responsibility for those containers onto their customers. So Coca-Cola didn't have to collect their glass bottles anymore. They could sell us their product in a plastic bottle, and then we would have to be responsible for managing that as waste. We as individuals and we as communities managing it as, as waste as um, in waste management locally. And of course, communities had to sell us that lifestyle. They had, I mean, co- corporations had to sell us that lifestyle. They were advertisements that taught people how to throw things away at the time. So it sounds like the pervasive existence of plastics in our society and our world today was forced upon us for corporate profit. Number one, from the petroleum companies to be able to monetize this byproduct of petroleum processing, and then number two, by the consumer goods producers in order to save them time and money from having to deal with the 
previous containers that were being used. Absolutely. And there's no doubt that plastics make people's lives easier. I mean, I'm a working mom. I know exactly what it means to be able to have plastics around to actually make, you know, my our, my husband and I both work. I know what that means for us to be able to have um, the ease of, of use and the ease of living that come with single-use plastics. But as you mentioned before, Bernice, that report that CL and our partners put together really starts to actually draw out all the things that for many years we couldn't see. And this is your second question. We didn't see how harmful plastics were. And now we actually know how harmful they are to the environment and to public health. I mean, we make hundreds, the corporations make hundreds of millions of tons of plastic a year. And hundreds of millions of tons of plastics are accumulating in our homes, in our streets, in landfills, in addition to the 10 or so million tons of plastics, just 10 million tons that accumulates in the ocean every year. And I'm saying that sarcastically. I hope that yeah. comes across on the radio. And, you know, when we look at the 400 million tons of plastics that are made every year, almost 50% of those are, are used as packaging. They're used as single use. And, those plastics are a visual blight. They are, they are harmful to communities around the world where they are gathering. But then the spaces where we actually make and manufacture plastics, you know, a lot of that, they turn green fields and in the case of Louisiana, wetlands into these massive industrial edifices that release pollution, that destroy what would be scenic landscapes, what would be public space. And they turn it into plastic, which is, accumulating everywhere. We're going to go to break right now. And after that break, we will continue with this very interesting conversation. And, and we'll move from that initial stages of, of developing that plastic to further along that life cycle. We have been with Jane Patton from the Center for International Environmental Law. We'll be right back on the other side of the break. And we want to give a shout out now to our sponsors. That is EarthX, the world's largest environmental experience, promoting environmental awareness through expo, conferences, film festival, interactive experiences, and now EarthX streaming TV service. Our other sponsor is Natural Awakenings, Dallas-Fort Worth Magazine, the Green, Healthy, and Sustainable Living Authority for the DFW Metroplex and North Texas communities. Print issues of Natural Awakenings can be found in all Whole Foods markets, natural grocers, central markets, sunflower shops, and many other locations, as well as available online free for download at nadallas.com. Our other sponsor is North Haven Gardens, serving the Metroplex, since 1951, the most respected horticultural establishment in North Texas, offering gardening and plant education, concert services, and we are told the best Christmas trees in Texas. Check them out at nhg.com. Our other sponsor is Lynn Dental Care, practicing dentistry for over 38 years with a holistic approach, looking at the whole body, specializing in periodontics. Dr. Lynn is board certified by the International Academy of Oral Medicine and Toxicology. Check them out at lindentalcare.com. Thank you, sponsors. Welcome back to Healthy Living, Healthy Planet Radio to our show today on the long life cycle of plastics, the environmental and health cost. And we're back with Jane Patton with the Center for International Environmental Law, and they just produced a very interesting and widely read report on the impacts of the life cycle of plastics 
on our world and its significance. Now, Jane, you were explaining to us this life cycle of plastics kind of at the beginning of it, at the manufacturing process, and how it just oozes pollutants and dangers all along that way. And so I want to now move a little bit <laughs> from that first part, perhaps to the next part, and then ask you, what are the most pervasive kinds and uses of plastics in terms of the amounts and in terms of the environmental impact? Well, corporations produce about, well, just over 400 million tons of plastic a year globally, 400 million tons. And about 50% of that is used as packaging. But plastics also go into, they're everywhere. They go into our cars, they go into our furniture, they go into, you know, how we, we purchase and source our food and water. Plastics are pervasive throughout our lives. And in terms of environmental impact, it's, it's difficult to separate off different kinds of, of plastics in terms of their environmental impact. It's, it's a whole suite of impacts that the entire process has. Um, you know, sometimes you hear people talk about polyethylene or polypropylene. These are the most common types of plastics. Um, we encounter those. Polyethylene mostly is, I mean, it's the basis of, of soda bottles, water bottles. It's also the basis of polyester, uh, which I have this polyester wrap wrapped around okay. me while we're talking. Okay. okay. Um, and then things like polypropylene are like uh, yogurt tubs. Um, this is, these are the consumer plastics that we're used to seeing in the grocery store. But they're also the kinds of plastics that are that are uh, tables and computers and cars and other durable goods that are not just single use are also made out of plastics like that. I'm glad you put that as you did. They are all so pervasive. <laughs> you really can't divide them out. So let's stay on this subject, though, in terms of how long they last. Mm -hmm. And then the other thing that we hear so much about and which seems to be maybe more pervasive or certainly more harmful is microplastics. Microplastics are pervasive everywhere. They're present in the production of plastics. There's no way to make plastics without producing microplastics because they're literally transported as like little plastic beads. That's how the resin, once it gets made, gets transported to Coca-Cola to make bottles out of it. It comes in the form of little tiny beads that count as microplastics. Okay. And we're dealing with those in the waterways all over um, South Louisiana and Texas. Um, there was recently a judgment against a plastics producer, Formosa Plastics Corporation, for consistently dumping in their rainwater and wastewater plastics into Lavaca Bay outside of Point Comfort, Texas. I mean, this is unavoidable in the production process. But then we also see those microplastics you know, 93% of water samples, both tap water and bottled water above 85% found microplastics or microfibers in our drinking water. And that's global. That's not just in the United States, although it's that high in the U.S. as well. The microplastics are the raw material for the plastic containers and things that we use, but they are also out there in the environment all around us. Is it correct to say that as I look out into my yard or as I sit in my chair that I might be oozing in microplastics or that they are all around me. I want people to have a sense that they understand really what a microplastic is. We know micro, it's little plastic. Mm -hmm. um, that's such a good question. Microplastics come in two very different forms. And one of them is the, the what we call uh, primary microplastics, intentionally created or added microplastics, 
things like pellets, things like the microbeads that people hear about, which are now against the law in the United States, but are still in personal care products around the world. Little tiny pieces of plastic that are intentionally put in our consumer products. Why so? Um, when it was legal, why was that done? Uh, they help with cleaning your face. They're an abrasive. Yeah. Oh, okay. I, so all the things that like build themselves as, I can't think of the word, but build themselves as like sloughing off dead skin. Abrasives. Uh, yeah. Um, a lot of those were actually little tiny microplastics that we were then washing down the drain into the water system. And thankfully that is, there is now a microbead ban in the United States, thanks to the hard work of advocates for a long time. And there's push um, for there to be microbead bans internationally, um, but that's still in the works. Okay, um, so, so those are intentional. But what about exactly? Them? And usually you can see those microbeads. But when it comes to microplastics, like what you're talking about in the air, um, every time, for instance, I move this polyester wrap that I'm wearing, it releases tiny little fibers that look like dust. But because they're made out of polyester, they are actually microplastics. They are microfibers, and I am breathing them in all day long while I am wearing this wrap while I'm sitting in front of my computer, while my chair in the corner, my, if my dog brushes against it and it releases fibers, those fibers are made of plastics and they're in the air. And so that's what I mean by them being pervasive and everywhere. They end up in our water because we wash our clothes and they get um, you know, washed into the water system and, and they settle on the ground and the rainwater picks them up. I mean, they're everywhere. Um, and those microplastics are created by essentially shedding of larger plastics. Um, the erosion in the wind, erosion from the weather, just, you know, erosion from where, um, and they, they end up in the air. One of the actually most common sources of microplastics in the environment is tires, car tires, um, because they shed as you, you know, every time you run a tire on the road, it That's sheds. That's why the goes away, yeah. Exactly, exactly. So microplastics in our lives, in our society are really unavoidable, and Shannon will talk to us later. I have to think that they build up. We probably excrete some of them, but I still have to think that they do indeed build up. So I mm -hmm. want to move a little bit now before we have to go to something that last year when we were with the people from the Plastic Pollution Coalition that I found out that there's been a myth perpetrated, and I want to find out from whom, who started it, that we're getting rid of this by recycling. Talk to us about that, Jane. <laughs> Well, <laughs> I think it's fairly common knowledge at this point. The study that came out several years ago that showed that actually only about 9% of plastics that we've made have ever been recycled. And those recycling rates are going down. The United States is actually this year announcing an 8% recycled plastic rate. And that's if you count everything we shipped overseas as being actually recycled, which is a big if. Um, when you ask me, you know, where did that myth come from and who is it perpetuated by? I'm going to go back to my first answer to your first question, which is corporations sold us this myth. You know, when their plastic started accumulating in the environment and it in the 1970s and it became a visible issue and people started being concerned about it, they said, oh, no, 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 we're going to collect them and recycle them. It, it, it's going to be great. And they sold us this campaign. They sold it in, in privately funded advertisements. Um, they sold it in, in privately funded nonprofits that look like they're doing great work. Nonprofits like Keep America Beautiful. I mean, their, their primary goal was to sell this idea of recycling. And what we've seen now is the levels of plastic that we are making, the amounts of plastic we're making every year, are nowhere near the amount of recycling and waste management technology we would need 
to, to take care of them all. And the investment in new plastic production, we're talking about over $200 billion being invested in new plastic production just over the next few years, largely in the United States. That's just the number we know in the United States, $200 billion. Whereas the investment in recycling, they just doubled it to a billion. It's nowhere near where we need to be. It really is. And then there's the other issue that I glean from our conversation today. So let's say if you could recycle half the plastic here in North Texas, then what are you going to do with it? Is there any such animal as a biodegradable plastic? Is there some smart person working on that right now? I'm sure there are lots of very smart, very well industry paid people working on that question right now. Um, but there is not a clear definition of what biodegradability is. There is definitely right now not any any plastics that I would consider biodegradable. Um, and even the plastics that the industry does try to label as such, um, you know, they might be compostable, but where is there a plastic composting facility anywhere near here? And just because they do compost doesn't mean they're actually helpful for the compost pile. They're not nutritive. They don't actually provide back to the soil in ways that we need them to. And, and even so if we're composting them, we just talked about it has a long life cycle. Yes, it still takes too long to break down. And as I mentioned, we have nowhere near the facilities to be able to take even half the plastics in North Texas. But I think the core thing that I keep coming back to, and I hope you'll talk more about this um, on the next segment, is if the plastics you are recycling are toxic and made of toxic additives, you are just creating a cycle for these toxics to be put back and back and back and back again into our bodies, into our homes. And if the recycling itself is toxic, then it is not a solution. And that's my question, last thing before we have to go. Are all plastics toxic? That is a very complicated question to answer, most of which are for legal reasons above my pay grade. Okay. Um, but from where I'm sitting, the way that we right now produce, manage, and use plastics is unavoidably toxic. Unab and it is wildly unjustifiable to ask community, to require communities to bear that burden. Exactly. Thank you so much, Jane. I really appreciate you have really educated us and made us smarter on this subject and primed us all up <laughs> to hear on the other side of it, because our goal is that people will be sensitized. They will understand this and realize I have to act because this is not good for my health or the health of the planet on which I live. Thank you so much. We've been with Jane Patton with the Center for International Environmental Law and we appreciate it and look forward to having you back again. We'll be right back on the other side of the break to talk more about the long life cycles of plastic from the health perspective with Shanna Swain. Thank you. Welcome back to Healthy Living, Healthy Planet Radio today. We're back with part two of our show on the long life cycle of plastics, the environmental and health cost. And we're now going to talk more about the health perspective. Indeed, plastic pollution may actually be an existential threat. And shifting plastics away from one area of exposure can end up exacerbating existing disparities. For instance, let's say you don't want plastics to end up in the ocean, so you decide to dispose of them by burning them. 
those fumes create new types of harmful chemical exposures, such as toxic air emissions, ash, or even wastewater. To be sure, some folks will have fewer microplastics, which we just talked about earlier in our show. Some will have fewer microplastics in their seafood, but now the people living near incinerators, when you're burning plastics to get rid of them, and of course that's going to be primarily low-income communities and communities of color, then they will bear the brunt of that noxious witch's brew and odor from the burning. So the picture can get pretty grim. Humans are exposed to a wide variety of toxic chemicals and microplastics along the plastic life cycle through inhalation, through ingestion, and direct contact via skin. And according to the report that was done by CIEL, health problems associated with plastics include numerous forms of cancers, neurological, reproductive, and developmental toxicity, as well as diabetes, several organ malfunctions, and impact on eyes and skin. And of particular note, and often underreported and underrealized, is the effects of plastic pollution on our reproductive health. And here today to help us unpack some of this, and probably just a tip of it because it's so much, is Shanna Swan, PhD. Shanna is an award-winning scientist based at the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, Department of Environmental Medicine and Public Health in New York City. And she is one of the leading environmental and reproductive epidemiologists in the world. Shanna has published more than 200 scientific papers and has been featured in extensive media coverage around the world. Her appearances include ABC News, NBC Nightly News, 60 Minutes, CBS News, PBS, NPR, and many more. And she's also been in leading magazines and newspapers, including Newsweek, The Washington Post, USA Today, Time, and The Guardian. And now us. Shano has worked for over 25 years to understand the threats posed by chemicals to our environment and our health. And when necessary, she's worked to develop new paradigms to assess these risks. Of most concern, though, to Shanna, are the chemicals that our bodies can confuse with our own hormones. And these are what are called the endocrine-disrupting chemicals. Shanna has a soon-to-be-released book titled Countdown, and it's all about the declines in our reproductive health as a result of the impacts of environmental pollution. Welcome, Shanna. We are so glad that you could join us today. Thank you, Bernice. I'm really pleased to be here and join you on this important discussion. Thank you. Now, Shanna, before we get started into most of our questions, can you tell us about why your book is titled Countdown? I'm very curious because I've been reviewing a brief on a major climate change report called Countdown on climate change and health. And the countdown there is related to 2030 when it seems the earth will reach a crucial threshold as it relates to global warming, a lot of which we're already beginning to see. But your countdown is different. Tell us about that. So our countdown is different, first of all, than that it's spelled differently. It's two words. And that's important because it's about count, firm count, which is the canary in the coal mine, if you will, that started this whole process, made us aware of this process. 
So the book isn't just about sperm declining because that's a signal for lots of other things that are declining, but we are worried about its decline and that's the down part. And also countdown is a waiting anticipation of that point at which our species is going to be severely threatened if they're not already. So it's double meaning. Uh, double entendre. But you know what? Both titles and both pieces of work are extremely important. And what they do have in common is our steady and swift march to something that is harmful to our health and our environment as a result of climate change and various environmental impacts. So they have that in common. Like, it's coming, folks. It's coming for all of us. That's right. Shanna, in our previous segment, I think we were really able to dissect and impress upon folks how long and how very pervasive plastics are in our culture, our society, our world from the environmental standpoint. And now you've been studying what they do to our health for over 25 years. Will you tell us more about this? Why should people care about what plastics are doing to our health? Why is it important? Why should they care? They should care because their own health. They should care because of their children's health. And they should care about the health of future generations because the damage that these chemicals do to our bodies can be passed on to future generations. So we should also care because what's happening to our species, we're not alone. It's happening to every species on the planet, probably. So what is this thing that's happening? Well, what's happening is that chemicals in plastic and in other man-made products are, having, are being produced and entering our body with the ability to interfere with our body's natural hormones. Why is that important? Our body depends on hormones to regulate and to communicate every aspect of our living and development, everything of our biological process. So if we're going to interfere, say, with estrogen or with testosterone, you can imagine, um, you know, you need us that to keep you going <laughs> in a lot of ways. And if you're going to interfere with that so that we have maybe less testosterone, which we've seen in the world, testosterone is going down, we might have lower sperm count, which we've seen in the world, and that may interfere with, say, a woman's ability to conceive, which is also becoming more difficult. She may be having mis more miscarriages, which we're also seeing. And all of these things are marching to the same tune. They are occurring at the rate of about 1% per year. And this has been going on since the introduction of plastics into our environment. Now, that's just correlation. That's not causation. So we've gone way beyond that. And that's what my studies over the past 25 years have done. Indeed, it does sound existential. Yeah. Uh, so, sounds like uh, the scenario of The Handmaiden's Tale uh, <laughs> <laughs> is, is not really so far-fetched. And one more question on that, Shanna, is that I guess I am concerned or surprised that we don't often hear more about the hormonal impacts because this is big you know like you said hormones affect everything and if plastics have the ability to send our hormones awry i heard that you can have something happening with the stars and the sun and it creates this magnetic pull on the earth that runs everything haywire right. and it sounds like that's the effect 
potentially with our hormones. Yes, and I just want to point out that the, there's no time more sensitive for hormonal development than in the womb. So if you think about those little minuscule cells developing rapidly, using hormones to guide that development, we are um, in trouble when we're interfering with that hormonal process, and that's what's happening. What is the evidence or statistics that we're seeing of that, that it's harming the wound? Two things, that it's harming in vitro, and it's dealing with, I don't know if the word is sexual development okay. yep. or lack thereof. Okay, so in our studies, we've shown that chemicals in plastic have the ability to interfere with particularly male development, sexual development. And um, that, you know, is maybe not bad for one individual. It's not extreme. But, but when you put the whole population together, you see everything being a little worse. You see the genitals being a little different. You see men having lower sperm count. You see fertility rates going down. It adds up to a very big picture, even though the impact on one person may not be that great. So fertility rates are declining everywhere in the world. And in some countries... Uh, they're very dangerously low. Uh, that we need about 2.1 children per couple to replace ourselves. And now the rate is in some countries as low as 1.2. In the United States, it's about 1.7. Um, this is, means that we will not be sustaining the population <laughs> over the long haul. Interesting. We're going to go to break now, Shanna, and we'll be right back on the other side. We're with Dr. Shanna Swan, and we'll be right back on the other side of the break to talk much more about this very interesting aspects of plastic pollution. And we want to give a shout out now to our sponsors. That is EarthX, the world's largest environmental experience, promoting environmental awareness through expo, conferences, film festival, interactive experiences, and now EarthX streaming TV. Our other sponsors, Natural Awakenings, Dallas-Fort Worth Magazine, the Green Healthy and Sustainable Living Authority for the DFW Metroplex and North Texas communities. Print issues of Natural Awakenings can be found in all Whole Foods markets, natural grocers, central markets, sunflower shops, and many, many other locations, as well as available online free for download at nadallas.com. Our other sponsor is North Haven Gardens, serving the Metroplex since 1951, the most respected horticultural establishment in North Texas, offering gardening and plant education, concierge services, classes, and more, and we're told the best Christmas trees in Texas. Check them out at nhg.com. Our other sponsor is Lynn Dental Care, practicing dentistry for over 38 years with a holistic approach, looking at the whole body. Specializing in periodontics, Dr. Lynn is board certified by the International Academy of Oral Medicine and Toxicology. Check them out at lynndentalcare.com. Thank you, sponsors. Welcome back to Healthy Living, Healthy Planet Radio. We're back with part two of our show today on the long life cycle of plastics, the environmental and health cost. And we're talking to Dr. Shanna Swan, who's helping us understand this more from the health perspective. Now, Shanna, you were telling us the pervasiveness of the disruption of our hormones, of these plastics in our environment. 
Is there any one or type of plastic that's more pervasive than the other as it relates to this hormone disruption? The class of plastics that I'm especially concerned about are those that make plastics soft, as in rubber tubing or rubber duckies. Um, and that those are called the phthalates. It's a big mouthful, mm-hmm. but um, they've been around for a long time, and there are lots of them, and there are lots of them in our bodies right now, um, and they have the ability to interfere with the body's hormones. So that, that's my main concern. I'm also concerned about the phenols, especially bisphenol A that a lot of people have heard about. That makes plastic hard, makes those nice hard water bottles and baby bottles, but um, it gives off something that's actually uh, interferes with our body's hormones as well. And what you just described in my mind is the plastics that I most use and most of us use most often every day. That's correct. For the soft bottles, the containers, and the little tubs and the things that we buy the takeout and the to-go food in, those are all around us. Yes. I've also heard and read that a lot of the issue is to the things that are added to a lot of these plastic products to keep the plastics bound together and that it really gets to be a nasty, obnoxious, dangerous process when you are heating plastic containers. Talk to us about that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we're not obviously going to chew on the containers, but it turns out that these chemicals are not tightly bound to the polymer, they're introduced because they have nice properties and they make it soft or hard. But then when the food is in the container, these chemicals, particularly if the food is warm, by the way, then these chemicals will leave the, the matrix of the plastic and enter into the food. And that food will get into us and of course into our bodies. So that's, they don't stay in the containers too long. They're, you know, coming into us every time we pour that spaghetti sauce or that bottle of milk or whatever, we're getting that plastic. Can we say that anytime we heat food or even put warm food into any plastic container, then for sure, or we're at risk, that plastic and the chemicals therein, toxins and otherwise, are going to leach into whatever we're eating or drinking from that plastic container? That's absolutely right, Bernice. That's correct. And, and you can see that by doing an experiment where you take people and don't let them do that. Don't let them eat food in plastic for a while. And then you measure their plastics in the urine and you see it's all gone. So there's really good proof of that. No doubt about it. And a lot of us did not realize that you can see and measure the plastic in the urine. And I don't imagine that's a normal thing that is tested when you go to the doctor for your physical. You have to go look for that or something of that nature. That's correct. It's unfortunately still a little expensive. And uh, there are kits, you know, being developed and tests being developed that people can use, but they're not on the market yet. But I'm hoping they'll be there so that we'd be able to say, we don't know the exact number, but we know it's too much. Shanna, let's talk a little bit more, though, about some plastic additives, some terms that we hear a lot about, I read about them, I see them thrown around, and that is PFOS. As I mentioned to you earlier, I've been searching for new pots and pans, and being, quote, plastic aware, as I am now, I'm, I've, I've been very careful to read what they're made of and coatings and things like that. And what I've noticed on a number, probably three or four sets that I've looked at is 
no PFOS, PFOS or something like that. Talk to us about that. Why are they trying to tell me that? <laughs> so PFOS and PFOA are um, chemicals that are very concerning. Unlike the phthalates and the bisphenol A, they these are forever chemicals. They stay in our body for years and years and years. The other ones, by the way, leave quickly in a couple of hours. So okay. we're in some ways more concerned about these forever chemicals that are going to stick around. And they're used to coat things. They're used okay. to make things, you know, uh, Teflon coats our pans, mm -hmm. Guard coats our clothing, mm -hmm. and they keep off water. They're very useful, but in fact, they do emit chemicals, these chemicals that get into our body and interfere with a number of things, including you mentioned, I think, the, our thyroid system and our immune function, which means mm -hmm. that it's going to interfere with how we react to vaccinations, for example. Uh, and studies have been done showing that the vaccines are less effective when people are exposed to these chemicals. What would you say are the greatest health costs, bodily and monetarily, to humans as a result of the toxins and chemicals associated with plastics and plastic pollution? I would say there's two places I'd look. One is the, our reproductive development, which we've talked a lot about. The other is the brain. We're, we're interfering with uh, normal brain development. We've shown that, for example, children that are um, exposed to plastics in the womb have later language development. That's going to cost them in terms of their schooling and their development. There's lots of problems with behavior associated with these chemicals. So there's a lot of behavioral problems. We have to remember that the brain, like every system in the body, depends on hormones. So you, it needs the right amount of testosterone and estrogen at the right time if it's going to develop fully and health in, you know, into a healthy brain. And when we interfere with that, we're going to interfere with our children's ability to maximize their potential um, in many ways. We only have a little while to go, Shannon, so I want to ask you a couple of things. Again, back to the hormones. I think we've clearly established it just sends the hormones out of whack. Are there any emerging issues that are being studied or that we're just now seeing in terms of the negative and destructive effects of plastic pollution on hormones? Well, in last segment... Um, I know that Jane talked about microplastics, mm -hmm. and this area of microplastics is a very new and important area for human health. We do not know the human health effects of exposure to microplastics, and they are so prevalent in, uh, as Jane talked about, in our water, in our air, in our daily lives, every aspect of our life, that if they are impacting our health, it's going to be very, very significant. They're, yeah, they're building up. Yeah. And they have, I have to think that they are going to impact the reproductive health that you talk about. I believe so. I believe so. And, and we can measure them in people's bodies uh, and have done, and uh, as well as in animals, of course, non-human animals. And um, they're, they're I can't believe that they're not having a significant impact, but we haven't done those studies yet. Amazing. Shanna, you write in your book about regulating plastics yep. and their associated chemicals. Do you have a vision for how that future might look, how we would do that? What can we do? I have a wish yes. <laughs> that, we would, that we would 
make a manufacturer require that a manufacturer proves his chemical to be safe before we introduce it into our products, into our homes, and into our bodies. This, to me, is um, absolutely critical, and it's actually required in Europe. There is a, a, a program in Europe called the REACH program that requires that a chemical be proved safe. And we have to stop doing what we call whack-a-mole or regrettable substitution where we take out bisphenol A, maybe because people don't want that product, and put in bisphenol F or bisphenol S, which is also harmful. And people are tricked by this. They think, okay, BPA-free, great, but it doesn't mean that it's safe. So I think, you know, we have to have better regulation of the safety of our chemicals, and we have to have the chemists producing the chemicals that we need to make these problems products safer. Why is, in your opinion, in your experience, Europe so much further ahead than we are in terms of something like this? Oh. <laughs> in your opinion, you've been in the field, you studied it a lot, and so your opinion is important to us. I believe that they take the public health more seriously. I think that um, they're willing to do battle with industry uh, that we have shied away from. And um, I think as a result, they have many fewer products are permitted in Europe, uh, say in cosmetics, right. uh, than in the United States. Um, and there's many products that we can't put in Europe that we manufacture here. Um, they just have tougher regulations. That's yep. their society. That's what they believe in. And I've heard that on a number of different levels of environmental issues that we cover here on the program. Thank you so much, Anna. We really appreciate you helping us to unpack this. You have definitely made us smarter. And we have been with Dr. Shanna Swan from the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, Department of Environmental Medicine and Public Health in New York City. Thank you so much. We appreciate Thank you. it. Thank you. And thank you, listeners, for listening in today to Healthy Living, Healthy Planet Radio. The conversation starts here, but our goal is for it to continue in your home, in your social circles, your workplaces, at the water cooler, and in the grocery checkout line, so that we can all work together to realize that healthy living is simply not possible without a healthy planet. Our culture is a result of a trillion tiny acts taken by billions of people every day, like yourselves. Each of them can seem insignificant, but all of them add up, one way or the other, to the change we each live through. This is your host, Bernice Butler. Thank you, and join us again next week as we continue our conversation on plastic pollution, its effect on our environment and our health. Thank you. Mm -hmm.